welcome to the Birth Activists podcast, hosted by me, Becky Scott, and fellow doula and activist, Samantha Gadsden. Good afternoon and welcome to the Birth Activists podcast, another amazing episode coming to you today, and obviously the lovely Samantha Gadsden with me. Good morning, Sam. Hi, Becky. Hi, Jenna. Hello. Yes, we have Jenna with us. Um, how are you today, Jenna? You all right? I'm good, yeah. It's, it's sunshine and it's nearly the weekend. And yeah. Yeah. All Lovely good. day full of chatting to wonderful people like yourselves today. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so some of you might know Jenna. She is tribe psychology. Um, if you don't know her, go check her out. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. Um, Jenna is a clinical psychologist specialising in the perinatal period. And she has come today to talk to us a little bit about what she does. And hopefully we'll have some um, really juicy conversations coming out of this today. You know, if anyone listens to the podcast, which hopefully a lot of you have listened to all the other episodes that we've done, we often have quite controversial and juicy topics that we talk about. Uh, <laughs> Jenna, have I just described, described you properly or is there anything else you want to add to that in terms of what you do? No, that's exactly right. And um, I guess sort of in various arenas, I've started to to own and add the, the birth activist title yeah. to sort of not differentiate me from, from other perinatal psychologists, but because I feel like that's an important part of my identity and who I am and the work that I do outside of the therapy room. Um, yes. So, so yeah, like I'm becoming more comfortable with that being a public part of yes. me as I develop. Um, hence why you're on the podcast, yeah. Hence why I'm here, yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah. It's something that, that Sam and I have talked about on previous podcasts, and we had one quite early on when we started with another doula called Paula about being an accidental activist. Um, and you're so right, anyone sort of working in maternity in the birth world, it does often become part of the role we play is that activism and, you know, ensuring people are, uh, people's rights are protected ultimately. And I think that the, the big part of it for me is that I want to do more work outside the therapy room because, and I, I say this a lot, I do sound like a broken record if anyone's heard me <laughs> speaking elsewhere. Um, but as a psychologist working in, in perinatal, the tendency is that we sort of see people when they're having difficulties, when they're having struggles, and what we know um, about the systems and about the way that things are set up is that people... That much of that is un, is avoidable and yeah. I don't want to spend all of my time I, I mean I love my therapy role and I love working with the clients that I do but it feels a little bit futile and like firefighting to spend all of my time pulling people out of the river or helping yes. people to to get themselves out of the river is would be a better way of describing it I'd rather go upstream and see why they're and I say I always say this falling in or being pushed in yeah um and so that's why it has to be part of it that's why it's the preventative measures rather yeah. than reactive isn't it and, and anyone that works in a caring profession and, and you know helping people will you know recognize that and it's it's quite poignant in the birth world isn't it as well yeah and you know it, it's, um, it might be helpful what does a psychologist do Gemma Jenna not Gemma no it's okay um so a clinical psychologist essentially um supports individuals groups couples and systems um, when there is a essentially a problem 
um, or some level of difficulty and whether that's around someone's emotions or a relationship, things not working the way that would be best for the people involved. Um, and I'm, I'm doing it as a very wishy-washy generic description because clinical psychologists often work, they do work beyond the therapy room, they do work beyond the one-to-one. Um, but when we do work one-to-one, we're often um, working with lots of different dynamics and approaches to try and understand everything that's had an impact on a person. Um, So we don't work with, most often we don't work with one particular therapy. So we don't see things as being attributed to a person's thoughts, for example, and we don't just work on changing their thoughts. We'll look at how how that links with things like the distress, but we look at, at systemic um, influences, we look at history, we look at context, we look at relationships, we look at emotional reactions, we look at the body. Um, so we generally- so it's a holistic it, approach. It is, it is, tends to be more holistic. Um, and that is why when I specialized in perinatal and had children, <laughs> I couldn't ignore the systemic influences and yeah. um, sort of that's where I found myself um and as I've as I've said quite a bit but I think we'll chat a lot about today is that I draw huge comparisons between um like the traditional medical model of understanding human distress which is driven by psychiatry um, and the medical model of maternity services so the system that we currently find ourselves in in this country and and countries similar to us I draw so many comparisons in the intentions and um, the lack of logic and the yeah and the damage that that, that then is yeah. caused. Um, Do you want to give us an example of that? Yeah, so um, I guess one of and and this is again in the same way as maternity. There's so much that we can't know. Yeah. But there's an attempt to to find out everything and to control everything. Yeah. Um, and to predict everything. Um, and I did a post about this, um, about what we learned from insane asylums and the mistakes that we're now making in maternity care. Yeah. So at one time, people who were diagnosed with a mental health difficulty um, were all basically sent to an in- asylums in this country. As recent as, you know, they were only actually sort of decommissioned and, and gotten rid of eventually in the 1990s. Um, it's it's very it's still a modern thing Mm. um and that was because of risk so everyone everyone got put there just in case um essentially and that's what we see all the time in maternity so it's doctor just in case it's come along again yes yeah it is just in case and it's about wanting to predict and eradicate risk and what we found with insane asylums uh, was that actually the side effects of putting everybody in those places and doing things to them to try and understand how to make them more um, compliant or how to make them less unpre- more predictable um, less violent as well you know that you know there was some undesirable unhelpful and potentially harmful behavior happening um, but what we know about that is the side effects were huge the side effects were massive of putting people in that place and experimenting on them essentially um and we see the same thing with the just in case maternity model 
the side effects. It is that thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I sort of came to this realisation quite, you know, recently, especially as well in terms of COVID and how things have developed it in during the pandemic, is that what seems to happen is things are put in place to deal with uh, things that might happen to a minority of people. But then it's happened, it's, you know, the majority of people are being treated for the minority. That makes, does that make sense the way I've put that? That's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. Yeah. I, I like that. I like yeah. that comparison because, yeah. you know, a lot of the, the mistreatment of people who were put into asylums was people being punished for being non-compliant, which we see in, in maternity services. It was a lot of women. You look at the story behind the Magdalene laundries, for example, it was yeah. oversexed women, undersexed women, women who'd been, there was a lot of women involved in it. And it was done for their own good. It was done to make them better people. They were terribly treated for their own good yeah. in the eyes yeah. of the people putting them there. And it was the same if you go back beyond the, the, the insane asylums into the workhouses. Mm, it was yeah. for their own good, wasn't it? Yeah, they were treated yeah. terribly to beat the sin out of them. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, we, we, I was just going to say, we see that with, with a lot of like induction of labour is one of those big ones, isn't it? Oh, well, you, you know, this might happen or, you know, th there's a risk that this might happen because of your gestational age or your BMI or all this, these types of things. And people are being offered induction or sweeps earlier and earlier and earlier. And it's like when you look at the actual statistics, the, the, the chance of that happen, of those you know, some of those things happening is quite small for people, yet they are being put in, in, a, in a big group with other people that potentially is a, a you know, a real um, high risk that something might happen. It's like the, the goalposts are so wide that it's, it's all capturing those people that it is, a, you know, a, a really good option for, you know, getting that baby out sooner rather than later. But also because those goalposts are so wide, it's capturing people that, uh, that actually it's probably not necessary for. And there's no way of knowing, like, what potentially there will be one day, but there's no way of knowing who is going to be the person who has the adverse outcome without yeah. the induction, or yeah. who, with that mental health diagnosis, will be violent in the community. There's, yeah. you know, there are some ways of, of estimating and guessing, but the ultimate desire to eradicate risk and to control populations to minimize bad things happening or to eradicate bad things happening mean that that if we can just do something that's simpler and quicker yes we'll just do it especially when it comes to people who are particularly vulnerable or oppressed yes. or valued less in society so people who don't conform to the norm like sam was saying people women and people who are not behaving in the way that's deemed valuable or um appropriate in society and that narrowing of normal just seems to get worse um, and i suppose it, it ties in with some of jessica taylor's work on um where she links a lot of modern psychiatry and psychology to um the old hysteria diagnosis that a lot of the current diagnosis is based on the old you know if, if we said to people oh, that stems from hysteria nobody would listen to it anymore but a lot of the traits of the diagnostic tools are still based on, on the old old mm. ones. At least that's And actually, um, women that were put in asylums were put in for like if you look if you look back at the the um, information that we have, the reasons why people were in were put in asylums for having children out of wedlock um, and for yeah for promiscuity and so not so hysteria is obviously a a, a 
a female diagnosis and that oh. has its own structural sexist foundation. I was going to say, I'd have been locked away twice. <laughs> but this is, you know, yeah. as recent as the 1960s. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I know someone, I know somebody who was sent to an insane asylum because they got pregnant out of wedlock. That's just they were nuts, a young, a young mother, and they were they were young, they were pregnant, they were out of wedlock, and they weren't doing what they were told in yeah. relation to pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and we see that all the time, don't we? I mean, Sam sees it a lot where people aren't conforming, and so there's you know social services are involved, and then the babies are taken away. Mm. You know that obviously that the worst case scenario, but that is, I see is more threat. I see much yeah. more threat of social services than it actually happening. Oh, if you can't do the right thing for your baby, we may have to make a referral. And that threatening to remove somebody's baby is often because whether the midwife sees it like that, that's what the woman hears, right? What yeah, she hears yeah. is you want to take my baby because I won't do what I'm told. So she does what she's told. But sometimes it doesn't even get to that threat, Sam, does it? It's the it's the um, communication, how things are communicated. It's like, well, you know, this is what we would suggest in your case. This is what our me medical recommendation is. And if someone's like, I'm in an R in or it's like, oh, I really don't want to do that, then it's like, well, you want your, you know, you want your baby to be okay. And sometimes even just that, that coercive language is enough for that person to feel ultra guilty that they're being a terrible parent by making, uh, by not sort of conforming and doing as they're told. Is, is, is that what you you sort of see as well, Jenna, in terms of some of the people that come into you? It's not just about, um, you know, a lot of it's to do with the language that's used. Yeah, language is, is, is a really big part of it. And I think comparing the two, so comparing psychiatry and maternity services, obviously there are good individual professionals, there are good obstetricians, there are good yeah. psychiatrists. That's our um, usual disclaimer on here. Disclaimer, <laughs> yes, don't come to me on social media. Um, yes, there are good ones, but the way that um, informed consent is or isn't ascertained and the information that's actually provided to people is very one-sided in psychiatry and very one-sided in maternity and it's always about the risks of not doing what they recommend or yeah. not taking this medication so like you know you might get told with if you get given some medication some antidepressants oh um this will help your mood you never get data on on how effective it is yeah. You never get data on, you might get told to read the inside of the packet. And obviously for legal reasons, you'll get um, all of the side effects listed. But actually it's even worse in maternity, isn't it? Because has anyone yeah. ever been showed the inside of the sleeve from um, like a any of those things? No. no. And so, I, went to, um, I went to an induction with one of my clients. Now, obviously she was fully informed because she was my client, right? But... She'd been booked in for induction. She went to the induction. I went in with her to this pre-COVID. So I went with her to sat there into the ward and they gave her a leaflet. And that's what they class as fully informing somebody on a process that can take five to seven days, involves numerous different interventions and drugs. There's massive potential side effects. There's a leaflet, a little foldy leaflet, you know, about six sides of a, so A4 folded into three on two sides, you know? and. You know, there was women in that ward saying, I could, we could hear them because you're there and you can hear. And they said, oh, I've been here 12 hours now. Why haven't I got a baby? How yeah, is that yeah. informing anybody of anything? It's not. Yeah. 
we have moved on from the we have moved on from the asylum situation in psychiatry and, and um the it was there was lots of political reasons and financial reasons around why it, it ended but also human rights reasons rightly yeah. so um but we have moved now to um a place where we think about when we think about risk assessment we actually think about in, so obviously i work in mental health services and so and risk assessment is part of that um and we think about positive risk taking um, yeah. and supporting people to live to have a good quality of life yeah. and good well-being and balancing that with the risks of harm to them or yeah. harm to somebody else and yeah. um, i i don't we're not there yet we're not there we're not i say yet we're not there with maternity in terms of sort of joining the dots and seeing beyond this um just in case yeah right this just in case is just fear driven and and when yeah. we didn't understand when we didn't understand mental health as well as we do now or we didn't have as many other options available for supporting people and to promote mental health in the first place we it was fear driven why people went into asylums and the reason why people go onto the induction conveyor belt is because of fear 100%. Uh, yeah. And yeah. then when we're in a system that is underfunded and understaffed, where's the room to change that? Mm. Who is the onus on? And obviously what we know as, as birth activists is that the onus now has to be on personal responsibility of people yeah. that may end up or that are going to end up or have the option to be in, within that service um, because of the way that things are and because... Yeah that fear is not getting any less is it that, um, no no absolutely the not problem, the problem with personal responsibility to a degree is this perspective of privilege is you know 100%. you need access to the internet you need to be educated enough to be able to read and digest and take in quite complex i know we know how to give birth like i say to my clients nobody taught you how to we you don't actually need me to tell you how to give birth but we've had that driven out of us by society um and and it it just worries me I agree with you you know but it is also a privilege and what I see when we're talking about vulnerable and underprivileged women anyway is that if they try and exercise their personal responsibility they get beaten over the head with a big stick and threatened with social services so it just becomes a massive you use the word control it becomes a massive well, I do know this oh you know better than the doctor do you oh you think yeah. you know better Jenna, do you think some of the problem is, I think you'll probably agree when I say this, is that, that the way that people are treated within the NHS, within the maternity system, is generally not holistic. So you will get some practitioners that are great. They will look at the whole picture and have that discussion with that person. There'll be a lot of um, time spent with that person, though. but they are a little bit like rainbow uh, unicorn poo. <laughs> you know, they're very rare. But what you often see, and what I see generally quite a lot, is that, you know, the, the staff are given a list of guidelines and they follow them to the letter without taking into consideration that individual person's, you know, situation. Because you might have one person over here that, you know, they look at the guidelines and think, yeah, that, you know, that person, might, that might be, be great for them. But the same set of guidelines for another person might not be in their, in their best interests to, to follow. Yeah, I, definitely, and I think there's, there's there's many reasons for that, which is, would be such a lengthy discussion um, <laughs> around. You know, there are types of people who who that that feels quite that's 
they're, they're fine with that. There's other people yeah. who wish that they, they could do things differently, but the, the just the demand outstrips their capacity. Then there's compassion fatigue and moral injury and protect, staff protecting themselves. Can you, talk, sorry, just, can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, what did you say? Compassion fatigue. That was your and point. moral and moral injury. Yeah. Can you expand yeah. on that a little bit? So, so compassion fatigue is essentially um, when you have been compassionate towards people, you run out if you're not able to be compassionate to yourself. If you do not have a break, because and. As a psychologist, I definitely have the privilege of being able to take breaks between my clients, mm -hmm. having that reflective space, having that time. Um, it's not a conveyor belt for me, yeah. but it's a conveyor belt for midwives and for maternity yes. staff. And they do not get that break. And eventually, you, because you don't have that processing time in between the people that you're running to on the ward, mm -hmm. you have to stop caring. It comes almost like an automatic, it's an automatic thing then, isn't it? No one's made a conscious decision to, to not care. Um, I mean, obviously, like we say, there's good and bad everywhere. There are bad, you know. But generally speaking, the compassion fatigue is that they do not have anything left to give. Yeah. They've given everything. And I experience it. So if I've had like quite a challenging day at work, um, I'll come home and if my husband or my children want anything too emotionally demanding from me they're not going to get it I, I can't yeah. do it you can't you, it's not unlimited so that's compassion fatigue I think doulas, doulas experience that but definitely midwives at the minute with the state of things at the moment you know many many trusts across the country working uh, with low staffing levels and they're having to literally just you know from from the minute they get there to the minute they eventually go home which is often after the shift finishes they're absolutely knackered and don't actually have that capacity to give compassion like you just said they've, they've got compassion fatigue um i think we're seeing that so much more than we ever did before the pandemic but you know it has been around for decades hasn't it i mean there's been issues with staffing in the nhs for, for many decades yeah it has and i think what we're seeing more so now over the last however many years um in terms of cuts we're seeing increasing um so compassion fatigue has always been an issue yeah and now what we're seeing and um i did a post on this which was um from a paper by some american researchers and i think physicians around moral injury yeah. and that is where obviously most people who go into a helping profession want to put their patients first that is yeah. you know the first thing is the priority is their patients but generally what you go into the profession to do isn't it you want to help people want to help people yeah, yeah. and working in these systems where there's increased pressures and um demands on demands for prioritizing and putting other things first people increasingly find that patients needs are slipping down the list yeah, yeah. um many different factors are at, are at play but they it chips away at their moral integrity and yeah. they get to the point where they're really experiencing moral injury um where the system is not allowing them to do what they're what they hold as the key to their job which is caring so damaging to their their mental well-being would you say yeah and yeah. what you'll probably hear is it's referred to as burnout 
Yes. And that, that locates the problem within the individual. So yeah. that is, you're not resilient enough to do this job. You're not resourced enough to do this job. You, you need to change something about your mental health to be able to do this job. Go away and get fixed and come back. Yeah. But this new, this recognition around moral injury is that actually, and I use the term, it's really hard not to get burnt when the house is on fire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good analogy. Because you're going into a system that, that it's, it's really hard to put patients first in. Yeah. Mm. So how, so if you're a caring person and you're having to care for all of these people and there's so much other things that are at play, targets, mm. you know, pressure, performance, what your seniors are saying, you know, just all of those things on top of, unlike, you know, cesarean targets or not cesarean targets, what's going to be the consequence of this with this investigation, yeah. all of those things around, usually around like litigation and risk and threat and fear. We've lost, all, in all of that, we've lost the patient. Mm. I say pa patient's not a very nice term, but um, we've lost the, the people at the heart. Of that user. Yeah. 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 So, I get it sometimes just from running group, not because I lack compassion, but because sometimes the amount of need yeah, in these yeah. groups that I run, which are huge now, is so big. And there's so, and I do a lot more behind the scenes work than anybody realizes. I don't think anyone knows how much is really involved. Becky's been admin of my page before now. And God, oh my God, how do you deal with all these notifications? I turned the notifications off, honestly. It was that and that's not even um, And that's not even the private messages that come through. And I want to help everybody, so I try and help everybody. Right? And I don't want anybody to think, don't listen to this and think, don't message Sam, because she's just, <laughs> it's just, it can be really hard then when you want to take time out. Because but also take, take, into, take into consideration as well that everybody that works as a healthcare professional, like obviously Sam, you, you know, the work you do as well, and, and obviously midwives, healthcare professionals, they have a family to go home to as well. So they've got everything that's going on in their personal life, which isn't always easy. Um, you know, Sam, sometimes Sam, what I was yeah. going to get to is sometimes I think, oh my God, I can't read another post. And yeah. I guess midwives must get to the point where they think, oh my God, I can't see another patient. But at yeah. least for me, I can actually close the group or I can walk away for the day or like I went yeah. away for the weekend and actually be careful what you wish for. I was like, oh, my God, I need a break from social media. And I had no signal, none whatsoever. <laughs> I couldn't get online if I wanted to. Right. And and but I can do that. But when you're in the middle of a clinic or a birth or a, I guess you can't walk no, away. No. No. And nobody my, my The only thing that makes me be the way I am is is me because I'm not answerable to anybody. Nobody can make me go and do something to somebody else, which we were talking off screen, is a breach of your human rights, because mm. you have the right to, is it belief and conscience? I can't remember the exact words in. You have the rights not to do anything that's fundamentally against your beliefs and forcing midwives to do things that they don't want to do to people. And they are forced, we all know it really. Um, Again, it's it. how, how explicit is that? Like, you know, we were talking about coercive language with, um, sort of pregnant people when we come to to that like it's just the culture and it's just this like so ingrained and entrenched that yeah and then people think that this is like oh well everyone has free will so the midwives could choose not to do this if they didn't yeah want yeah. To. yeah but the so it's so much more complicated than that and I think you know obviously there, there are things that go beyond that that 
that midwives do, and that everybody has free will to choose mm. or not choose but in terms of the way that the system's set up the choices yeah. are limited but also jenna people are choosing to to opt out you know we know yeah. from fact that there are midwives and and all sorts of healthcare professionals leaving a job that they love because it's no longer sustainable for their own mental health physical health whatever um and I, people so I actually had to do the same so i even though i have that space even though i have you know i'm very privileged to be able to work with a, a manageable amount of clients if you like um in the nhs i couldn't i couldn't work in the nhs full time yeah. anymore I, I work part-time and i love it and i love what i do but for my mental health I and you know it wasn't a situation where I got to breaking point but I didn't want to go back Why I haven't, well I haven't yeah. worked full time to be honest I haven't worked full time in the interest since 2017 <laughs> so um yeah and it's but some people don't have that luxury and privilege of the choice exactly, either yeah, and then what, yeah. what we're left what we're left with in the system is people who really probably did go in really wanting to help um and and but then yeah, so it's difficult, isn't it? Because we we still have the pregnant women and people at the heart of what we want to challenge. But then you'll have midwives who are in the system, who are struggling, who are trying, feeling like we're attacking them by yes. being birth activists. And it's yeah. so divisive. And, and the thing that I say when anyone is sort of challenging someone else who at the heart of it has the same aim, but may not be enabled to do that is don't look beside you look up like and that that you know we infighting is essentially what the people in control and the people in power divide want. and conquer isn't it divide yeah, and conquer they want us all squabbling between ourselves absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely let's, let's carry on locating the problems at this level yeah and let's carry you can you can name each other you can slag each other and that's that's fine because um nobody's questioning any sort of bigger narratives um and like you said that that blame us if yeah i guess it is blame is is put on the individual that's working in that system and no one ever looks at the system and says that's the problem it's like we know this is as it is yeah we, know we do it's know it is but i mean those those in higher higher places don't think that they're like well, well you know we need better let's staff. talk about let's staff. talk about my let's talk about the nhs a second and something yeah. i'm dealing with with my daughter where we won't go in detail because you don't need to know but the school has accused me of not following up an appointment now i can't follow up an appointment unless I go through the GP, because the GP has access to whoever they have access to. I don't even know what department I'm trying to speak to. I've now spoken to five different departments who deal with relatively the same issue, yeah? And every single one of them says, it's not me, it's them, it's not them, it's me, it's not me, yeah. it's them. Oh, it's your GP, it's your GP, they haven't done what they're supposed to do. And from where my end, they're the only people who've been trying to help us. But what I see from the outside, and I had the same one, you need the dentistry care as well, is there's all these different departments of the NHS who deal with vaguely the same thing. How many managers? How many managers are there to run these five different departments that all deal with vaguely the same thing? They're all sending letters back and forth to each other. Yeah. So there's the PEDS, there's the public health clinic, there's the school nurse, there's the GP. And there's another clinic that I'm not going to name, but they're all different sections of the NHS. How much money, time and effort does it cost to run all of these? And when she needs a dentist care, 
they'd outsourced part of what she needed to do. And the outsourced private dentist that they'd outsourced to went on furlough. So they closed. So the NHS staff were all trying to pick up the pieces and frantic parents ringing them up going, where's our appointment? What's happening with our daughter? Because the people who were being paid by the NHS and furloughed all their staff are gone for the whole of lockdown. And the NHS staff are being left to pick up the pieces of this random piece of privatisation. And this is what we were talking about in terms of the NHS isn't holistic. Yeah, not at all. Because they don't communicate, systems don't communicate with each other well enough. Not at all. In terms of physical health and mental health, so obviously I'm, my primary role is is in perinatal mental health, um, as a perinatal psychologist, and I, it's only in a very minimal way that we, that we in the NHS are integrated with, um, maternity services and it's sort of like you like you say you refer on to a different service and so and then sort of that's sort of a separate thing and as a psychologist you know I said the way that I work and the way that we work generally is is more holistic where we see physical and mental health as completely inseparable uh, affecting one another and that we need to look at the whole person to make sense of of how to improve that person's life Mm. um and and i think in the nhs they did start to do before cuts and covid and things they were trying to get back to that with um so like elderly people who generally would have more um complex or multiple needs they were trying to have like a name going back to having a named gp yes um, and sort of more family gp and care that's coordinated in one place to do with there was also there's quite a few case loading uh pilots yes. going on were there for for midwives as well my eldest has complex eczema he's 20 he's 20 he's had eczema since he was a little boy now when he was a little boy you had a gp yeah so yeah. in that time my youngest is nine and my eldest is 26 so in the time since my eldest was a little boy you go to the GP, his eczema was really bad, you were trying different things, but every time we went to the GP, we weren't starting from scratch, because our GP mm. knew him, he recognised him, he knew where we'd been before, but now our, our practice has got loads of different GPs, you never see the same GP twice, and every time you go in, you're almost starting from the beginning, or they're trying to pick things up from a computer note, or the lack of continuity of care that we see in midwifery, which yeah. we know is, is costing lives. Lack of continuity yeah. of care in midwifery, cost lives because it's the most effective way of saving women and babies and people's lives is continuity and people say we don't understand it well I understand it I understand it because if you see the same midwife all the time and you're looking a bit peaky and not well she recognizes it whereas now physically and mentally as well because there was um so I was having a chat with someone recently and they were talking about um sort of recognizing someone's mental distress early enough if they were their caseloaded midwife versus um if they were in a team where they would just see so in my first pregnancy I think I probably saw about eight different because obviously in your first pregnancy you have a few more appointments I think I saw maybe like eight different midwives Uh. throughout my pregnancy and then obviously on the labor ward as, as many as it took um sort of maybe six and then didn't see anyone I don't think I saw the same person twice antenatal in in labor and postnatally um and that was okay I mean I was fine but you know I might not have been and it would have been much better if I'd had some continuity 
Yeah. Um, it just, it's so, it's so disconnected from supporting people holistically and being, we know being pregnant is not an illness. Yeah. We know that it's a, a huge life change. Yeah. Being pregnant, you know, it affects you physically, not as an illness, but hormonally, it affects yeah. you emotionally. Yeah. Um, it affects your relationships. And so yeah. becoming a parent, giving birth and becoming a parent, like we finally got matrescence in the dictionary and we recognizing that as a huge life change. But the holistic support is not there. No, not um, at all. Not at all. And and we're talking here, Jenna, about people that are uh, in inverted commas like average your average person yeah. going through the system you look at the people that are outside of that that have complex needs that need extra support that that, that you know the people don't you look at our you know black and, and brown people are entering the system as well that need that extra level of support and, and you know extra things put in place to make their journey smooth they are like 100 times worse off than than our um average in inverted commas people that, that go through the system for example I'm a supporting client at the moment she has got a, a number of um health complex health needs um and emotional needs as well and I've been to two antenatal appointments with her and both of those she saw different doctors each time and each time she saw three different sets of doctors and then I was I in the hospital tell you different stuff yeah and, but then but then just one day i was in the hospital with her she saw three lots of doctors and they all asked her the same questions again and repeat the same information again uh, and then they each have from a business perspective even if you don't care about the people that's inefficient right so exactly to a place where this where the system is not even efficient well, that's what i was trying to get at with the number of different yeah, departments my daughter was doing the same thing inefficiency yeah and it's like well you know who, look at the funding of the nhs and you know they're saying oh, we need more money we need more money but actually if you look to the systems and how they work or don't work as the case may be and you know implementing some changes there and you know there are a lot of people that are, are against case loading the continuity of care in, in midwifery but that's because it's not been implemented correctly you know in a way that's going to be good for the midwife you know sustainable for that midwife to work in, in that system but if yeah if you looked at that some sam's example there and the ones i've given and, and i bet you hear of a million different cases as well jenna it's just like all this nhs time and money where it could be so easily streamlined and save more money and be a lot easier for people to access and a lot smoother and a better, more positive experience for them. And it's a no brainer looking from the outside in, isn't it? It is. And, and I think the reasons why we're where we are, obviously lots of financial, political, societal stuff, but also with this drive to control and make things predictable, it's something that I work a lot on in the therapy room as well. So you can yeah. sort of really draw a parallel. So people want to know what's going to be happening in their future. Yes. They want to know if everything's going to be okay. They want to know that like the first thing people will be like is, can you help me? Like, and sitting with that uncertainty and recognizing that in life is really hard for a lot it of people is. because of the society that we've created that doesn't tolerate that, doesn't tolerate that level of unpredictability and um that not knowing um that does make us as humans feel a little bit out of control if, if makes us feel a bit anxious yeah. and it's made worse because society tries to um 
like that's the, the, the science science is like let's learn about everything and yeah. let's control everything and let's yeah. let us make the decisions about everything and so we're we are all complete control freaks compared to you know hundreds of years ago when we didn't have that and obviously there are huge monumental benefits to like the scientific revolution and and things like that in terms of improving our lives but actually the core of human distress that I often work with with people and when you look at the systems that sort of drive that is around intolerance of uncertainty yeah and we're so controlled my my I think I might have said this on this podcast before my daughter's friends had a row with their teacher in school about not being able to go to the toilet when they want to go to the toilet and they were like well it's a breach of our fundamental human rights and that's teachers like but we let you go to the toilet and the girls are you know you let us go to the toilet when you say it's okay to, the to-, to go to the toilet it's control and we're controlled from a really young age in a very structured society you know people who sit outside of that norm are seen yeah. as weird you know I, I, I home had one of mine Becky's a home adder as well and we're seen as weird and and you know people seem or, to think or difficult like I used to challenge so much stuff at school around like this doesn't make sense or yes. why are you asking me to do this yeah like can you tell me why this is important for me um yeah. and you get labeled as like yes the it, it, it doesn't detention if you're just questioning something, it doesn't mean you're going to decline it. It just means you need more information to be able to make that choice or that decision. Isn't it? I, I, don't, I don't agree with punishment-based parenting styles. I have my own parenting group. So I, I have banned detention and isolation and after-school clubs from my daughter's life, as I don't see how they help. Evidence is that homework isn't effective. The actual evidence says that children don't do any better because they give them piles of homework. And if you look at the academy schools, which thank God we don't have them in Wales, right? And they're ableist. You have to look your teacher in the eye. You have to shake hands. If you, you know, my 14 year old's autistic, he's not looking anyone in the eye. And why should he be forced to? Because of what? what yeah. Who does it benefit? That's the question. Thank you. Who does yeah. this control benefit? Yeah. Um, these yeah. teachers who all think they're doing the right thing are controlling the children. They themselves are controls. And these are the people teaching consent to the future generation. And then I think, well, how, does, how, how are we expected anybody? Because midwives and healthcare professionals, I said this yesterday, in my opinion, no longer understand the meaning of the word consent. Mm-hmm. And they think that badgering people until they cave and agree is just an example of their amazing persuasive powers and not because they bullied and coerced somebody. They actually think that's consent. But if the people teaching consent to our young people and then our students and then our student midwives, don't understand consent themselves yeah then yes. how is anybody ever gonna like wrap their head around but also when, when informed decision making comes without any consequences because at the moment you make an informed decision about something and it's against what that person wants you to do then you are labeled you know you're, you're given that massive guilt trip for example um you know someone decides that they don't want they don't want to leave the hospital they don't want to be admitted they don't want to accept the intervention that's being offered whatever that is they are then presented with a piece of paper they have to sign to say they have gone against medical advice so that is you know just that piece of paper obviously you know 
we understand as people, you know, I've worked in the NHS myself, the, the, the risk of litigation that the NHS are so worried about. But that person having signed that bit of paper then thinks, oh my God, I'm such a terrible person. You know, they're made to feel so guilty, even though that person's not said, oh, you're, you know, you're making the wrong decision. That's a terrible decision to make. They've been like, well, yeah, you do have the option to go home. That that bit of paper is like, it's in writing now that I've actually not conformed. And that can be quite powerful, can't it? It can. And, and I think it it really, as, as somebody who has been parented in a way that I've been able to make individual choices and to, um, it starts with parenting, it starts with education. And yes. I, I feel comfortable questioning authority. I feel comfortable asking for more information, but there's so many people that don't. And yes. it really does, It as Sam says, it really does. The, the people that are teaching us around bodily autonomy, consent, um, converse having conversations, making individual choices that are right for us. If we are raised to a point where we don't know what's right for us, we just know what's right for the society that we live in. Yeah. Who are we going to end up as? Like, where are we going to end yeah. up? Um, Absolutely. We're going to end up with people who aren't authentic, who don't feel happy, and then there'll just be even more investment in mental health services and you know, well, that's what's been happening, isn't it, Jenna? You know, that's what's been happening. It's like, you know, all this, all this, the state of the maternity system, what do they do? Bring more mental health nurses in <laughs> or midwives or whatever. Because, yeah. you know, they, but they're just treating the symptom. Yes. They're not looking at the exactly. cause, are they? Yeah, yeah and, and that's the same. And, and, and not acknowledging the side effects of the, the just in case approach, the control, the let's eradicate risk. You can never eradicate you can never eradicate all risk yeah. and we have this conversation a lot um in psychiatry and in maternity services yeah. but it just seems like the tunnel vision this is the ultimate goal and we're not actually even giving any attention to the impact of that on people physically or mentally um to be honest, yeah. the only thing they care about is life baby they literally yeah. do not care about the woman anymore they yeah. don't my client literally said that to me yesterday they don't care about me they're only interested that the baby's okay what do you think? Well, we, we know that because we, we see it and we see it, it's happening in America at the moment. We know that women and birthing people are not valued. Um, it's, it's, it's historical, it's ingrained. It's about the people that are in power, which are usually white middle-class men, men um, yeah. and uh, in rulers. And yeah. it's, it's, yeah. So it's um, it's still it's still it's still there, and I just guess the thing that I like to support people to do is to to support them to feel okay, whatever whatever that whatever's right for them, yeah. to feel okay with that, and yeah. also to acknowledge that there is always a level you cannot control everything. You have no. to be able to tolerate some level of uncertainty, some level of unpredictability, and some level of risk. Yeah. to be able to live your life now and make choices and feel happy about them now yeah. whether that's in relation to your maternity care whether that's in relation to your mental health just your life like as soon as you accept that you can't control everything you can't please everyone yeah you live so much better 100 um, and that is a theme that just runs through uh, things that I do in the therapy room things that I do outside the therapy room and it relates so much in terms of the systems that I work in as well um 
we have been taught though as a, as a society that we, we should conform with what everyone else does that that's the general gist of what you know you come into this world and you know most uh, children are brought up to abide by the rules and not question them and and x y and z and I think that's when you suddenly start to be, I think that happens like especially like for me and Sam I think will, will agree with me is that when you've got a child in school where they are not fitting in that box you know because I was brought up to tell I have to go to school that's the way it is you have to get a job that's the way it is um, but having a special needs child that isn't fitting in that box really just turns everything upside down and makes you question things and that for me was a massive turning point in, in my role as a doula in terms of recognizing that not everyone fits in that perfect little box that society has said we all should fit into we all should be like this we all should be like that not everyone fits in that and actually why should we and you know? it's really hard I've practiced child-led parenting since my younger three I wasn't so brilliant with my older one were born yeah but Yes, let's face it, the first ones are guinea pigs, aren't they? So. My daughter was wearing a baseball cap pulled down to her eyebrows and a bandana pulled up to her eye, eyelashes, right? So all you could see was her eyes. And we were sat at the table outside at the pub waiting to go to the theatre. And I said, look, take that mask off. You look ridiculous and it's rude. And we're sat at the table. And I got quite stroppy. And then I said to her, but I had to apologise because then I said to her, actually, if you want to sit there with a bandana pulled up to your eyes and your baseball cap pulled down to your eyebrows, that's up to you. But I've had to like read, and I'm still doing it. I still have to say to her, I'm sorry. And I get, and when we came home, I said the same thing. It's up to you if that's what you want to do. Because, you know, she wasn't doing anyone any harm. No, she wants to sit there, but yeah. I had to think. And I tried to change it. Even even yesterday, even though she's 12, even though I've raised it, and she didn't do it, right? So the reason with body autonomy is there, because she was like, I'm not taking my mask off. And the mm -hmm. more you tell me to do it, the more I'm going to pull it up, yeah? We've and all then, had a level of conditioning in society, haven't we? And I think obviously diff differing levels and they can change over, over time, definitely has in my case. And people so people in, in power positions, and let's be honest, we are in a power position over our children to a degree. Yeah. We've not been taught to apologise to them either. No. Not been taught no. to say sorry. And that carries on into our work life, you know. I've had to really train myself when I, when I snap in groups to say sorry to people. And I do snap. I'm only human. And yeah. I think, what I really want to go is it's my group, you know, and sometimes I do say it's my group because actually, but if I'm snappy and, and rude, then I have to own it and say, look, I'm really sorry, I'm having a hard day today, you know, and I shouldn't have said that. And our PM people will apologise sometimes as well, but we're not raised to do that as adults, I don't think. No, to absolutely. Own our own mistakes. Sorry, we got a bit off on a tangent. <laughs> Jenna, what do you Jenna. do for private practice before we go so that people have an idea? So, so I, I do work in private practice, um, supporting people with um, any manner of sort of emotional, psychological, relational difficulties in relation to their perinatal period. So whether they're family planning, trying to conceive, they've experienced loss, um, they're experiencing emotional distress in pregnancy, um, they're particularly fearful or anxious around birth in relation to any sort of historical difficult experiences and how that makes them feel about either the medical system or the physiological process of birth um, and then with postpartum um, adjustment or um, emotional difficulties after birth and I don't I, I, I struggle to say I don't ascribe to a diagnostic model of, of mental health because I 
I place it within the system. Um, and I talk a lot, a lot about that on my social media around how society how society has caused the increases in, in postnatal depression, for example, around the lack of the village, the lack of support, the lack of um, th th this expectation that that people who have a baby just need to suffer because it's mm -hmm. hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also the, the way that we're positioned as individual, like the, the the individualistic society that we're at is where we should be able to look after ourselves and take care of ourselves and succeed. Um, so, yeah, so I don't ascribe to a diagnostic model, but you might see me using that to as a, like a common language thing. Yeah. Um, because That's the language that people recognize. But, yeah, so I support people with things that would attract a diagnosis of postnatal depression. Yes. Um, perinatal anxiety um you, or most of which is all underpinned by trauma of some sort but birth trauma um or trauma re-traumatization um yeah. so historic trauma that then that then comes to the fore around yeah. some interactions in their maternity journey their perinatal journey um so yeah all those sorts of things um what would you say is one of the most common things you're saying at the moment i think postnatally the, the most common like I, birth trauma is massive and that's around yeah. lack of control and not being listened to. Yeah. And then the other thing postnatally that may relate to that, um, but the, may also relate to this idea around um, expectations and how we yeah. should be postnatally yeah. um, is around um, people doubt, not trusting their instincts and their parenting ability, becoming anxious and feeling like they're failing as, as a parent and um, that they're not good enough. And then that can tip into anxiety or it can tip into depression if you- I, I like you said, that, that definitely stems, I mean, you know, we can go back, you know, very far with that in terms of, you know, how they've been brought up, whether they've been brought up, you know, praised or put down, or, you know, also when they, as soon as you become pregnant or or even in that, that journey to conceive as well, it, it's a constant um, uh, putting down of your abilities as as a woman and, and what your body's abilities are isn't it it's uh, well you know actually you need to be seen by midwife because this midwife knows more than you do and um you know your body can't do this so we need undermining to trust and instinct has a yeah. huge impact throughout the journey and then you know it the, the, the distress related to it can happen at any point but often when the support drops off even if the support is coercive and not particularly mm. helpful when that drops off postnatally and you've been conditioned to think that you you can't trust your own instincts and yes. your decision making then and you're left to like parent a human a vulnerable human yes. you do like you panic or you feel that you're a failure and that those instances out. when you're in hospital trying to breastfeed and the midwife comes oh on grabs the boob grabs the baby head shove it on there you go you can do it and then you get home and you haven't got that midwife there to do that again so you but you then don't that's have that knowledge or that trust that's in your body yeah that's, yeah exactly. that's giving someone giving someone medication for their mood and then expect and then not thinking oh well when they come off that medication the mood might dip again it's like oh well we can help you feed this time we'll put yeah, the last this time bloody red hats on babies oh my god so you've been in the hospital and every time you've looked at your baby it's got a big red fucking hat on it for alarm bells yeah and then you go home and the entire of your baby's life to date has been you looking at them with a big warning sign on top of them yeah mm. and then suddenly you're home and there's no hospital and there's no staff and the red hat's gone 
But all of those alarm bells you've been seeing ever since it was born for however long you were there, they haven't gone away. And all of your photos, oh. I've spoken to women who've black and whited their photos. and. But yeah. sometimes, Dan, those hats stay on because the midwives don't tell them when they can take them off. And they're like, oh, we have to keep Ooh. the hats on day and night. <laughs> who even thought of it? Like, mm. who thought that a red, amber and green traffic light system, so even if your baby's fine, it's got a hat as a massive in whoever stopped to think of that i've not seen a, that in our trust is that a whale thing or is that an no it's trust? in different trusts around right. the country I, I see it as a form of obstetric violence yeah a man probably yeah probably <laughs> so Sorry. i'm really impressed that we've you've, we've been going for almost an hour now and you've only just dropped the f-bomb so well done for i that. never <laughs> used to swear i say this every time until lockdown I didn't swear. And since <laughs> lockdown, my nine-year-old is still saying to me, Mum, you swore again. Because I'm so like, but I never used to. I used Our to last episode like, with uh, Michelle was incredibly sweary, wasn't it? But yeah, Becky has put a disclaimer <laughs> on that word. <laughs> At the end, it was just like sod it, can't beat them, join them. Let's just all I'm do it. so frustrated because I do feel sorry for midwives. I really, yeah. really do. I feel sorry for them in their professions. And I feel sorry for them as people who have to give birth. Yeah. Because they're, a lot of them are completely tra- I've worked with midwives that's so traumatized by what they've yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah. Not the home birth midwives, the hospital midwives. Mm. But at the same time, they do perpetuate it. And, you know, it's like I had to choose. I had to choose. Because when I was trying to rip myself in half, trying to think about everybody, I was getting ill. So I had to come down on the side of the woman or person giving birth because it, it, there's too much of that. It's, it's a bit like the Ukraine war. I don't look at that because there's so much needs already in my group. So I, I can't cope with looking at anything outside of it. And that's where I've had to go. And I've become more and more vocal because I see more and more and hear more and more. So I don't yeah. feel like I have a choice. Yeah. So, so we're going to uh, start wrapping the podcast up now. Jenna, is there anything that you haven't said you wrap up, Jenna. Put out there to, to, you know, tell people? <laughs> oh, it's a hard one, I feel like, because um, we've touched on so much and we said that, didn't yeah. we? We'd start somewhere and end up somewhere completely different. Um, and I love having these conversations. But Maybe I just some advice for someone going into the system, you know, any, any sort of bits of advice you could give. But and it's really hard when you used to be impassive, when you are trying to be assertive, it feels like you're being aggressive and the yeah. system will definitely treat you as if that is what you're doing because Absolutely. they're not used to people being assertive either. Yeah. But if there's anything that you can do, practice being assertive, practice being curious and in a way that that feels comfortable for you but it probably will feel uncomfortable. Yeah. If, you're, if you feel in, uncomfortable because of your behaviour, not because of someone else, it's probably a good thing. Like yeah. you, sh- yeah, you need to put yourself out of your comfort zone or enlist support that can help you do that Yeah. to ask those questions, to make those decisions that will, ev- you know, in the end, support you to feel better about events and feel more in control and feel more informed and make those informed decisions because it's not going to be given to you on a plate most of the time yeah I still have trouble with that as a doula Jenna it's still those instances where you are challenging somebody 
and I'm always thinking, how can I put this in a way that I'm not going to be perceived as being aggressive? Yeah, that's not going to And I do it the same. I am in a really privileged position in that some of the conversations that I have with people, because I've got a doctor title, so I'm not a medical doctor for anyone that's maybe not <laughs> caught who I was at the start. I'm a clinical psychologist, but I have a, a, a clinical doctor title. And with that comes great power, great responsibility. And But I do have the privilege to be able to advocate like a big role is advocating for people who would not be listened to I can say some really challenging abrasive um, things to midwives to doctors to psychiatrists to people with lots of power because I have recognized I have lots of power um, and I'm saying exactly the same thing probably as what someone else who has less power than me would say yeah. But, it's, but I recognise how it, that it's actually sometimes received better from me or accepted more. That's not the way it should be. It's the way no. it is. And so find someone who can be that voice for you if you can't do it for yourself. But again, yeah. that's tied up with privilege as well, isn't it, Sam? So much. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes what I say to my clients, or not, not necessarily my clients, more women in my groups, really, is if you really feel like you can't speak to them, but you've got all these questions because they give me all these questions that they want to put to people. Write it down. So yeah, I tell yeah. them to, to write letters to their consultants and midwives before they go to their appointments. Take them with them. And it starts with, I'm really sorry it's not you. I find it really difficult to talk in appointments. These are the questions I would like you to answer. Have a copy, give them a copy, and then write down their answers because you're not trying to speak in a pressure yeah. position. <laughs> So that's my tip for dealing with... But also as well, recording those appointments. Recording consultations. Yeah. Wow. Because, you know, a lot of people that would struggle with that talking and asking those questions were also struggling with making those decisions under a, in a pressurised environment. So recording it, taking it away, processing it, and thinking about it in the, in the comfort of your own home when you're not feeling pressure with a doctor looking at you, I think is, is yeah, the, the next. And if professionals are being equitable, and I know that professionals have got an issue with being recorded, why? If you're doing exactly. your job properly, why do you mind being recorded? And you do have- yeah, and I've, had to, I've had to reflect on that as a psychologist, actually, because it, um, in some therapy modalities, um, you're, we're more likely to record our sessions for supervision purposes and sometimes we want clients to record sessions or and and I was reflecting on this because of the whole you can record anything and I was like oh that's really interesting how do how would I feel if a client asked to record my session yeah and I was like no I, I would actually be fine with it but then I'm like but well, then who would see it why and then that's just more about me and paranoid about my own <laughs> ability yeah, maybe you know, when I talk recording I do mean voice recording kind yeah, of that's yeah. what was in my head because yeah, I can yeah, see why yeah. people mind having their faces recorded because yeah, that's yeah. you don't know where it's going to end up do you but when it's just the voice yeah yeah I yeah, don't yeah. understand the problem you know if you've got nothing to hide from the way you're speaking to people and you're giving factually correct evidence-based information yeah. Like social services have got a real issue with being recorded. They do not like women recording. And the police meetings. as well. The police have got a real issue with being recorded, haven't they? And, and you so see that why? so much. Um, they have their cam cameras. Yeah. And then when people start recording them, they really, really don't. You can see they really don't like it. I've just had a subject It's got a lot of youth officers in lots of trouble, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I've, just, I've just had a subject access request come through it doesn't matter what it's about but all the names are redacted on it every single name on it so i've got no idea who was saying what to who but my name is all over it mm. 
they're all allowed to know who I am, but I'm not allowed to know. Who, there's a whole load of questions about what's going on in, in public sector yeah. work. And I'm aware of most of them because of my other work in my village group. Yeah, so I see a lot of help. It's about um, recording stuff as well. I have some of the other podcasts, I think, as well. But uh, yeah, definitely. Emma Emma Ashworth has got some really good posts about knowing knowing your rights, going in prepared with questions, recording your session. And like you say, just, you know, all the stuff we've covered have been so valuable for, for birth workers and, you know, people accessing the system as well, I think, today. You know, a lot, we've, like you said, Jenna, we've covered so much. Um, Jenna, thank fault. you so, so much for joining us. The conversation has been really um, useful and I think it will be for, for many people listening to the podcast. Definitely for me, I've learned a few things um, having spoken to you today. So thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me and, well, no, allowing me because I approached you guys, didn't I? Because I was like, oh, yeah, it's, a long time I'm ago. going over the birth activists. Yeah, you, you know, you know. Birth activists now. Well, you were anyway, right? You didn't need, yeah. you didn't need to. Yeah. Thank you um, for having me so much. No, it's been really lovely to have you, Jenna. And yeah, definitely the, the invitation is open to come back again if, they, if you want to rant about something different. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there's, there's always... Like, oh, let me get my list out. I have plenty. <laughs> <laughs> We'd only covered page th- up to page three out of the... Out of the, yeah. 857, no. <laughs> I'm impressed you've made notes, Jenna. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for today on the podcast. And so, uh, yeah, see you again next time, folks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Birth Activists podcast. Until next time.